Hello, and welcome to Afternoonified. The podcast that will only play if there's a jazz band also playing. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. How are they supposed to hear us over all this jazz? What? I couldn't hear you all over, over all that jazz. Maybe I'll just play all that jazz from Chicago there and we'll you go. That's, get a cease uh, and desist slapped on I was going to say open source. <laughs> <laughs> open source jazz. <laughs> There's plenty of it for this time period. Uh, I've actually never seen Chicago. Really? I've been trying to find a time to remedy that, I will say. It, it, it's pretty good. That's what I hear. <laughs> It's worth a watch. I don't think you're like missing out by never having seen it. But. It's not like never having seen Moulin Rouge. Yeah, that would that would be a little more upset over because that's just a fun movie. Y'all watched Elvis yet? No, I I, I can't stand Austin Butler. I, I really I won't. <laughs> he just looks so dumb. I hate his dumb face. I mean, I I say this. Yeah, with, I understand but, this is completely just irrational. Well, no, I hate Shailene Woodley's face. Um, and you know how I feel about <laughs> Timothy Shama, whatever. Um. But uh, Elvis was not a smart man. No, but that that also doesn't make me want to watch a movie about it. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, I liked it, but it's also that very, very specific specific genre of movie that I like. Jukebox musical. Yeah. All right. So we're we're gonna talk about an old timey unsolved murder because you know how much I love those. Genuinely, I love old timey unsolved murders. Um. I guess because everyone is just so stupid in them that, like, reading about them makes me feel smart. I mean, yeah, I I can see that. It's kind of like the research equivalent of watching Jackass. Yes. All right, so, yes, we're going to be talking about the Axeman of New Orleans, and I will be using the A-X-E spelling of Axe in this episode, because I think A-X is stupid. Yeah, I've never spelled it that way. It's too few letters. Yeah, it just looks weird. It's like spelling gray with an A. Like, why would I? Yeah, I don't do that either. And uh, Google Doc yells at me for both of them. Yeah, of course. Yes, the Axeman of New Orleans. Um, I'm just going to cite my sources now so I don't forget. Uh, yes. So we I got... I going to remind you because I forgot. In the, in the mini next week. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, my sources are Smithsonian Magazine, Medium historicmysteries.com, crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, countryroadsmagazine.com, nola.com, uh, and nola.com again. They have a lot of like good old-timey news articles. Oh, nice. Uh, also Wikipedia, also uh, Thinking Sideways. Uh, God bless them. Uh, yeah, they did an episode about this. I forgot about that. They did. I missed Joe's voice. It is a very it's smooth... very soothing. Yeah. Um, we had Joe on this podcast. We did. We talked about boats. So many boats. <laughs> so many boats. Are you ready? I'm so ready. March 18th, 1918. The sound of jazz music flooded the city of New Orleans. More than usual. It wasn't a holiday or a citywide celebration. Instead, the people of New Orleans were playing music thinking that it would potentially save their lives that night. Why? A serial killer with the best name was on the loose in the Big Easy. <laughs> Wreaking havoc on primarily Italian-American families who worked in the grocery business, but also not like a ton of havoc because a lot of the victims survived. The name of this weirdly specific madman? The Axeman of New Orleans. (coughs) (coughs) 
Sorry, I'm choking love- on cigar smoke that I didn't know was in here. I mean, it does sound like you're like narrating this all from like the corner booth of a very smoky <laughs> bar. Yeah, like a cigar <laughs> appeared in my hand. Like slowly zooms in. My seltzer turned into whiskey. Weird. Weird. What is that? A fog machine? Oh my god, I'm Robert Stack now. <laughs> uh, all right. So all true crime intros aside. Uh, the Axeman killed six people and injured six more between May of 1918 and October of 1919. That's uh, his- bad. <laughs> it is bad. Thank you. Uh, his weapon of choice was uh, frequently an axe that belonged to the victims, uh, which he usually left at the crime scene. And in many cases, he gained access to the house through chiseling a panel out of one of their doors and then reaching through to unlock the door. I remember... Yeah, I remember yeah. this very weirdly specific, like, M.O. And yeah, then he would just leave the panel and chisel there. Uh, so then, after causing Where a massive... Where was he buying all his chisels? Exactly. Follow the chisels. Um, so then, after causing a massive panic, uh, he vanished into the ether, never to be identified. As, mo- as, as I would argue the best serial killers are. I mean, because whenever you find out, serial killers are better as, like, someone some abstract concept to be feared versus like the actual men who as we've discussed before are usually very disappointing (laughs) yes i would say that i am more scared of the zodiac than i am of ed kemper correct actually no ed kemper's like six foot nine and like 400 pounds like i'm actually very scared of him (laughs) um apparently has he has an ass for miles just (laughs) the biggest butt just a dump truck back there yeah. I, well, God, what was the quote? I, I feel uncomfortable talking about Ed Kemper's. Oh, he's dead, I think. It's fine. Oh, great. Um, no, there was a, a quote from, like, a sheriff's deputy who went to go, like, talk to Ed at one point. He's like, and then I saw Ed get out, Ed get out, Ed get out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> Such a descriptive way of speaking. I am going to make sure that your quote about Ed Kemper having a dump truck <laughs> makes it onto a t-shirt or something. <laughs> oh, great. I'd love being quoted on t-shirts. <laughs> All right. So let's, I, I don't know, let's just start. Um, that's my, my intro. Okay. So Joseph and Catherine Maggio. Also, there's a lot of Italian names in here. I'm going to try my best. Okay, so Joseph and Catherine Maggio lived at the corner of Magnolia and Upperline in a house that was attached to the bar and grocery store that they operated. They had no children, but Joseph's younger brother, Andrew, who was a barber, lived with them. Uh, Joseph and Catherine were still awake when Andrew went to sleep in the next room on the, on the night of May 22nd, 1918. At around 4.45 a.m. the next day, Andrew woke up when he heard a loud moaning coming from the next room. He pounded on the wall, but there was no response, so he panicked, and instead of going to check on his brother, left the house, ran a block down the street to get his other brother, Jacob, that they both went to go get yet another brother, Salvatore. Salvatore? Salvatore? Salvatore. To, To be fair... I would probably panic like that. I'd be like, I don't know what's happening. I'm pretty sure it's something bad. I don't want to deal with it myself. I'm going to go get my brother. It's the fact that they went and got a third brother. (laughs) A full half hour after Andrew had woken up, the three entered the bedroom of their brother and sister-in-law. An article from the New Orleans States from later that day described the crime scene that awaited the Maggio brothers, which is a video game I would absolutely play. (laughs) 
you know, Super Maggio. Super Maggio Brothers? <laughs> That's really dumb. <laughs> yeah. There's not a lot of humor baked into this episode, so I gotta create it when I can. All right, to quote the newspaper article. Oh, right. Uh, warning, there's like a lot of murder in this episode. Uh, I don't get super great. graphic, but like it's not great, so just like heads up. I mean, it is a full episode about a serial killer, so. Well, you would think uh, people would, would realize that. Okay, so uh, lying diagonally across the, bread, the bed uh, with his feet touching the floor was the body of Joseph Maggio. On the floor alongside the bed, resting across the feet of her husband, lay the dead body of his wife. The floors and bed were smeared with blood. The man was not yet dead. Jacob Maggio summoned the police while Andrew telephoned for the charity hospital ambulance. He died shortly after the arrival of the interns, as from the old-timey article, uh, from the hospital. Um, Which I assume interns is like an old-school word for, like, paramedics. Yeah, maybe just, like, new doctors. Like, instead of residents, they had interns. I don't know. Oh, maybe. I know nothing about old That's me guessing. Wildly. (laughs) Uh, robbery was the most obvious motive, but after a little investigation, that motive didn't really hold up. Uh, true, a metal box holding the day's receipts, estimated to be less than $50, which is about $1,000 in today's money, um, had been smashed. Uh, investigators thought it was odd that the intruder had ignored all of the jewelry in the home. A safe was open, but it showed no signs of forced entry, and whether or not there had been anything of value in it was unclear, as Maggio had recently deposited $650 into a bank, which is about $12,000 now. Oh, that's substantial. It was business money. Like, because I assume they take the cash box from downstairs, upstairs every, and they put it in the safe and then make a bank run. Um, The killer was thought to have hopped a fence surrounding the house, then gained entry by prying a panel uh, from the exterior door. The intruder grabbed the Maggio's axe from the backyard and took it inside. He passed through the kitchen, went down a hallway, and then entered the Maggio's bedroom. It was believed that he had first attacked Joseph and then Catherine by slitting their throats with a straight razor. Oh, he's just like... Really making sure. And then bashing their heads in with the blunt side of an act. Further investigation turned up several clues that didn't actually help solve anything. Uh, the screwdriver used to chisel out the door panel was recovered from the backyard. Uh, in the yard next door, a blood-soaked suit and socks were found, as was a bloody straight razor. A block down the street, Detectives Theodore Opitz, um, which as a note of curiosity, would die in a gunfight shortly after this. Um, potentially a victim of friendly fire by his partner named Harry Dobson. Anyway, so Ted and Harry discovered a message written on a nearby sidewalk in chalk that said, quote, Mrs. Maggio is going to sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony, which uh, Mrs. Tony Simbria or Siambra uh, was a, an Italian woman who was shot and killed in oh, 1912. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that is terrible. Catherine Maggio's throat was slit so <laughs> deeply that her head almost came off. This kind of humor just really makes the episode lots of fun. Um, all right. One theory. Oh, we'll get ready for some groundbreaking police work. Oh, boy. One theory by police was that the serial killer was simply, or that the killer was simply insane. Great work. Of course. All the insane people kill other people. Another was that it was an inside job. Some theories were more refined than others. I mean, to be fair, most murders are inside jobs. Well, and 
with blood, blood spattered seven feet up the wall and bodies falling out of the bed, it kind of seemed That's weird that the younger Maggio brother hadn't heard anything until 5 a.m. Granted, he had been out drinking the night before. No, actually, that makes complete sense. Well, it was to either celebrate or kind of numb the pain of the fact that he had just been drafted Ooh. into the Navy. <laughs> He's not having a good day. No. I don't think he had to go to the Navy, though. Oh, well. Andrew Maggio was held for questioning, and he was soon identified by the press as a suspect. Uh, so the razor found near the crime scene was similar to one that he had taken home from his barber shop. Um, and evidence seemed to suggest that the Maggios had been killed with a razor and that the axe was used to mutilate oh, the bodies okay. to hide the fact. Um, I was kind of wondering, like, why more so damning into it, was but... the discovery of an allegedly bloodstained shirt in his well, room. I think that's what, nineteen eighteen? That could be anything. Oh, just wait. Uh none of this really explained why Andrew would need to break into a house that he lived in. Oh. Well, I guess if you're trying to like hide the fact, you would do that. But I mean, I still don't think it was him just because of I have, you know, knowledge from the future. But <laughs> um regardless of this fact, quote, formal charges will probably be lodged against him, unquote, police told a newspaper. He was prevented from going to the funeral and was instead subjected to four hours of questioning by the police. As it was, as it was, the police had no case against him. The razor was determined to not belong to Andrew at all, and the stains on the shirt were from wine, not blood. Well, I saw a note that it was stained with wine from a wedding that he had attended the year before. And I didn't get any more information on why he still had it. Was it maybe, like, not that big of a stain? Just never tossed it? That I would get, because if it was just kind of like, oh, you got, like, a splotch on the arm. But also, it's 1918, and clothes are expensive, and you can't afford to buy more than, like, one shirt every three years. Like, you'd keep it. Yeah. Yeah, especially if it's, like, his going-out shirt. Um, Andrew was released on May 25th, and the police were no closer to solving the Maggio's murder. On June 27th, 1918, one month after the murder of the Maggios, Polish grocer Louis Bessemer and his mistress Harriet Lowe were attacked in the living quarters behind Bessemer's grocery by a man with an axe. Uh, Bessemer had been struck with a hatchet above his right temple, which resulted in a skull fracture, and Lowe was hit over her left ear. The couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack by John Zanka, a driver of a bakery wagon who had come to the grocery in order to make a delivery. Bakery wagon is the most charming sentence that you will hear in this episode. Oh, he's delivering bread. <laughs> I just kind of pictured him as like a little elf. Uh, Zanka found both Bessemer and Lowe in a puddle of their own blood, bleeding from their heads, but somehow still alive. Uh, the axe... That's- yeah, the axe, which had belonged to Bessemer, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Uh, Bessemer later stated to the police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed with the hatchet. One thing I didn't, like, get into is the difference between a hatchet and an axe. I think a hatchet's smaller. A hatchet is, like, a little miniature hand axe for your hand, and it saves you when you get stranded in the Alaskan wilderness. That's a very specific example. <laughs> Have you never read The Hatchet? No! You weren't forced to read the hatchet as a child. Um, what grade were you in? Like fifth? Oh, dude, I was in Catholic school. Gary Paulson? No. I actually, oh, sorry, not Alaska. Canada. Same thing. His the plane Yukon. crashes in Canada and the pilot dies and he survives in the wilderness all on his own with a hatchet. It's a good book. Yeah, I have. All right. It won a Newbery Medal, I think. And that's been Literature Corner. <laughs>
the podcast within a podcast. Uh, Harriet Lowe described the assailant as, oh, there might be some words in here that aren't, like, super kosher, um, and I will try not to use them unless it's, like, a direct quote where it matters. It is 1918, and people are are terrible. Yes, I... It's not the word that I know that everyone thought of when I said that. Uh, I would never. Lowe described the, asyl- the assailant as a, quote, mulatto man. Ah, uh, yeah. When the police discount, uh, which the police discounted due to her state of probable brain damage. I mean, fair. Uh, however, not to discredit the name of racist cops everywhere, <laughs> police arrested potential suspect Louis Obacon, a 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed in Bessemer's store just a week before the attacks. No evidence existed to even suspect this man, yet police still arrested him, stating the Abacon had uh, offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. He was later released due to the aforementioned lack of evidence. <sighs> yeah, that all tracks. Not the only black man in the story who's going to get arrested for no reason. <laughs> wow, some things never change. Uh, while Bessemer made a full recovery, Harriet Lowe died on August 5th, 1918, following a complication during a surgery to fix her partially paralyzed face. Oh, maybe just leave the face paralyzed rather than have surgery in 1918. Yeah, uh, she spent the weeks preceding her death making a series of buck-wild statements <laughs> about the case including her suspicion that Louis Bessemer was a German spy. He's Polish. A German spy for Kaiser Wilhelm II. I don't know. I kind of like that angle. Just wait. Bessemer was arrested, investigated, and released due to, once again, a lack of evidence. They really just kind of assumed everyone was telling the truth, huh? On her deathbed, Lowe stated that Louis Bessemer was the man who attacked her with the axe. Despite being also attacked with an axe himself. Yeah, I don't think that really happens. Bessemer was arrested and charged with the murder. (laughs) But nine months later, a jury found Bessemer not guilty on the assault of Harriet Lowe. Oh, did did someone tell him that the only evidence was this brain damaged lady said it was him? Yeah, like, I, I obviously feel bad that this lady, you know, got attacked and died, but this bitch... Did some spiteful ass shit for no reason. <laughs> to be fair, I- I'll give her a pass because again, she got hit in the head with an axe. Um, but he also got hit in the head with an axe. Like it had nothing to do with Lewis, yeah. and she was like, "No, this guy's a spy." And also, he did this. <laughs> no, but I'm saying like that is understandable that she would be saying some crazy shit. The real fault lies with the policeman who just took that crazy shit at face it's, value. It's- to be fair, the policeman did not believe her when she said it was a mulatto man, but that was somehow <laughs> less believable than Louis Bessemer, a Polish man, is a German spy. Ugh. Granted, granted, Louis Bessemer, not a totally kosher gentleman, well, despite being Jewish, so he might have been. Um, Harriet Lowe was his mistress. I mean, who doesn't have a mistress? Um, I haven't found one yet. <laughs> I've been shopping around. Florence Pugh will not return my calls. That's that's sad. Sorry. I've been trying to get in touch with Elizabeth Olsen's people. <laughs> All right. So on the same night of Harriet Lowe's death, August 5th, um, 28-year-old Anna Schneider awoke to find a dark figure standing over her bed. The man hit her in the head multiple times, cutting her scalp open with Ooh. what police believed was a lamp. Ah, I was just about to ask how, like, you hit someone over the head with an axe and fail to, like, 
kill them instantly. But that would make oh, sense. This guy doesn't like like I said, he injured six people and killed six. Like he's hitting them with the blunt side of the axe. It's surprising how non fatal an axe attack can sometimes be. Yeah. Her husband, Ed Schneider, returned late from work after midnight to discover Anna with her face covered in blood. Anna was alive but remembered nothing from the attack. Um, Eight months pregnant at the time, Anna gave birth to a girl two days later, and both of them were just fine. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad, like, one good thing happened, because I feel like that's going to be pretty rare for the rest of this episode. Yeah. Um, Authorities discovered none of the windows or doors to have been forced open. They arrested an ex-convict, uh, a black man named James Gleason, yeah. who ran from the authorities when he was approached. There was no evidence connecting him to the crime, so he was released, stating that he only ran because he had been arrested so often. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not funny. It's not. <laughs> but, oh my god. Having no leads, the police publicly speculated that the attacks have had been by the same person. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say right now, I do not think Anna Schneider's attack was the same person who attacked Louis Bessemer and the Maggios. Yeah, no, I am doubtful. There's not enough, like, well, for one, no axe. No axe. Uh, the entry wasn't the same. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, five days later, on August 10th, 1918, Pauline and Mary Bruno awoke to find their elderly uncle, Joseph Romano, in his room with two cuts on his head. Oof. As they yeah, uh, as they entered, a quote dark-skinned, heavy-set man wearing a dark suit and a slouched hat unquote uh, was fleeing the house. Romano, although seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived. Yet he died two days later due to severe head trauma and being a very old man. Yeah, uh, the home had been ransacked, yet no items were stolen. Uh, authorities found a bloody hatchet in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. Okay, so uh, this was definitely the guy. Yes. Uh, Joseph Joseph Romano's murder fit most of the criteria for an Axeman attack, except he wasn't technically a grocer. However, his nieces operated a small grocery operation out of the front room of his house. I do kind of wonder if, like, the grocery thing was just incidental. Like, uh, We'll get into it a little bit later. Okay. I'll save that. Following the Romano murder, New Orleans went bug fuck with paranoia. <laughs> Even the people who weren't grocers? Yeah, as people tend to do when there's a murder on the loose. Um, you remember Summer of Sam? I mean, not you personally remember the Summer of Sam, but... I don't know, I am pretty old. Or uh, when the Night Stalker was fucking around in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, so people called into police claiming to find axes in their backyards and seeing axemen lurking around in their area. Um, a retired detective, John D'Antonio, the best name Great for a retired name. detective... Uh, added to the panic with public theories published in a newspaper, the Times Picayune. Picayune, yeah. Picayune? Is that yeah. how that's pronounced? Yep. I don't know what it is. How the hell did you know that? Because I've just I've heard the news name of the newspaper before, but like I don't know what a Picayune is. I couldn't tell you that. It's, it's going to come up a lot. This paper caused a lot of fucking trouble. Um, all right. So uh, D'Antonio theorized that the killer had dual personalities: one of a normal citizen and the other of a man with an insatiable lust for murder. Who killed without a motive. A real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I doubt it. Well, I mean, given what we know about serial killers now, he's not, like, 100% wrong. Like, look at BTK and John Wayne Gacy, who both had normal lives until they didn't, you know? Like, they were just dudes until they weren't. Yeah, but there's, like, a difference between compartmentalizing between, like... Oh, for sure. Your normal life and the part of your life where you're a serial killer and, like... 
literally having multiple personalities. Yeah, it's not like he just blacked out and like woke up covered in blood holding an axe. Like, for sure, not that. But it is kind of a precursor to the like, I never would have expected him. Because like, right. I'm pretty sure everyone expects whoever is carrying out these attacks to be a drooling maniac. Ted Bundy wore a suit sometimes and didn't look like a maniac. Well, it's definitely not as hot as people. I've had this conversation with Sadie several times. I think we've had this conversation on this podcast. Probably about how Ted Bundy is like maybe a six. Yeah. I can't really think of any serial killers who were actually hot. Like Richard Ramirez had good hair. This is true. He did. (laughs) That's all I'm going to give him. (laughs) Oh, Tex Watson was kind of hot. Anyways, played by Austin Butler in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, really? (laughs) I don't know. Was were we talking about that when we were recording this episode, or is I that just going to be remember. out of context? I don't remember. I think no, we did. Okay, it was after the intro. We're good. <laughs> I'm being haunted by Austin Butler. Continue. You'll get used to it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I if the transition from this stupid shit to what I'm about to talk about is going to be rough. Okay, great. I need like a a buffer, like something mildly serious. Um. It's Thursday. It is, in fact, Thursday. That's a good neutral. (laughs) All right. On March 10th, 1919, the Axeman took a little field trip across the river to Gretna, Louisiana. 69-year-old, nice, grocer, Orlando (laughs) Giordano. Orlando? It's Orlando with an I in front of it. Orlando. Orlando's probably it, yeah. I have the most fucking Italian last name, and I can't pronounce any of the shit. (laughs) Well, you married into being Italian. I did. You know, once you, you marry into being Italian, they do send you uh, breadsticks in the mail once a month. Oh, that's that's a nice little perk. Well, you know, your family now. <laughs> God, I would kill for a <laughs> Olive Garden breadstick. All right, murder. We're talking about murder. Okay, so uh, 69-year-old nice grocer Orlando Giordano heard screams coming from his neighbors and rival grocers, the Cordomiglias. Which is my favorite last name out of all of these. I also love that it's like two grocery stores next to each other and they're bitter enemies. Both Italian. <laughs> Both Italian, but also bitter enemies. Uh, well, uh, so at his neighbor's house, he found Charles Cordomiglia laying on the floor bleeding and his wife, Rosie, clutching her dead two-year-old daughter, Mary. Oh, this is supposed to not have dead toddlers in it. Look, I could have done Hinterkaifeck, which I think had two dead children in it, or I can do the Axeman, which has one dead child in it. It's almost like we did this to ourselves with the vibe of our podcast. Weird. So, yeah, Rosie uh, Cordomiglia is bleeding from a head wound. A bloody axe was found on site, and the back door panel had been removed, obviously. Yeah, the usual. Uh, Police Chief Peter Lesson and Sheriff Louis Marrero uh, apparently decided on the Cordomiglia's next-door neighbors, Orlando Giordano, and his 17-year-old son, Frank, as the culprits. This is in a different uh, city, by the way, so different law enforcement. They really just, like, who's the first person we can think of? Pretty sure they did it. Oh, pretty much. Um, As grocers, they were competitors of the Cordomiglia's and had recently taken them to court over a business dispute. So, like... Not totally off base, but that's also literally yeah. all they have. I, say, I mean, that's not not a motive, but that it's well, you got to have more than that. Yeah. The Giordanos called the police when they found the Cordomiglias. Like they were the ones who like brought the authorities. And before, like they could have finished them off. Yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, well, we'll get into it. The trouble was 
No evidence implicated the Giordanos. Boy, this is becoming quite a familiar tune. Yeah, the phrase no evidence comes up a lot. I love that. I love that they have to arrest them before they discover there's no evidence. Oh, just wait. Um, not to be discouraged, the officers took to aggressively questioning the Cordomiglias as they recovered in the hospital, oh, repeatedly asking, who hit you? Was it the Giordanos? Frank did it, didn't he? According to the doctor who treated her, Rosie always said that she didn't know who attacked her. But when she was well enough to be released, Marrero immediately arrested Rosie as a material witness and incarcerated her in the Gretna jail. What the fuck? This woman's husband and child just died. Oh, no, her husband's still alive. The kid was the only one that died. I know there's more delicate ways I could have said that, but that's where we are. Rosie was released only after she had signed an affidavit that identified her neighbors as the attackers. Christ. Police arrested the old man and his son, and they were charged with the attack, which, if you recall, includes a count of baby murder. Jesus. You know, I do wonder, because, like, I've heard, like, obviously there are stats of, like, the closure rate in the old-timey days was so much higher than it is now, and it's like... Yeah, it's because they made shit up. Yeah, I was like, how much of that is just, like, police arresting the first person they can find and, like, totally railroading them? Our justice system sucks in a lot of ways that allows people who do crimes to get off of said crimes, but it also does keep shit like this from happening as often. As often. So when the Giordanos went on trial, the only evidence against them was Rosie's statement. And yet, after a trial of less than a week, Both were convicted of murder. Of course. The Orlando was sentenced to life imprisonment, and Frank, who was 17, was sentenced to hang. What the fuck? Nine months later, Rosie retracted her statement in an interview with the Times, the Times word that you pronounced for me earlier. Picayune. Picayune. Thank you. Um, She said that St. Joseph had come to her in a dream and told her to tell the truth. No word on which St. Joseph. Um, Picayune is the a small coin of little value. Great name for the paper. <laughs> Maybe that's what it um, cost. By extension, it beca- it came to be known as trivial. Wow, great name for a paper. Not for nothing, Rosie's husband had also filed for divorce after she refused to retract her statement. Good on him, honestly. Yeah, he like she was like, no, they did it, and then he was like, Rosie, stop fucking lying, and then they divorced. Um, probably not the only reason, but. Granted, like, I, if you were in her shoes, she, I probably would be reluctant to recant too, because, like, oh, yeah. the police are clearly very intimidating. Oh, just wait. Uh, Rosie signed another affidavit, this time declaring that she hadn't seen her attackers and had been pressured into identifying the Giordanos. Despite Rosie's retraction, the prosecution didn't immediately give up. At one point, she was, at one point, she was threatened with perjury charges if she didn't stick to her original story. But in December of 1920, the Giordanos were set free, and once again, the police were left with fuck all. Jesus. Um, you know, if they actually did, like, real investigating, rather than just, like, arrest the first person that comes into their line of sight. I mean, the police weren't great, but then it's also the 1900s, and we didn't really grasp the concept that sometimes people just do murders to strangers for no reason yeah. until, like, 1974 or whenever the fuck Mindhunter happened. <laughs> By this point... I'm sure you're all wondering where the night of jazz comes into the story. And it's um unhinged, but also very derivative of a certain mean murder man. <laughs> it was the result of a letter anonymously sent to and published by the Times-Picayune on Sunday, March 16th, 1919, about a week after the Cordomiglia family attack. 
And now, strap in, because this guy is a grade A nerd. This is my favorite part. (laughs) Such a long letter. All right. Quote, hell, March 13, 1919, New Orleans. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come again and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe be smeared with the blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way in which they have conducted their investigations in the past. Yeah, probably because they were just fucking arresting random people in the street. (laughs) Uh, in fact, they have been so utterly stupid so as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. Uh, but tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they never were born than for them to incur the wrath of the Axeman. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, he's only killed, like, three, three of of several people he's attacked. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure that your police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. (laughs) If I wished to, I could pay a visit to your city every night, and I will... And I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. God, this man is exhausting. (laughs) I have thoughts, but I'm waiting until the end of the letter to share them. I don't want to interrupt what's a glorious letter. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 o'clock, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to the people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music and will swear by all the devils in the nether regions. Sorry. In my junk. Yes. (laughs) All my dick demons. (laughs) Is that not why most serial murders by men happen? Yes. Yeah. Correct. Okay. I will swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well... Well then, so much the, the better for the people. One thing is certain, and that is some of those persons who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. <laughs> well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and as it is about time that I have left your homely earth, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, and that it may go well with thee. Is he writing for the Bible? Jesus. Uh, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or the realm of fancy. Signed, the Axeman. Thoughts? Criticisms? Notes? So, assuming that the guy doing the murders is the same guy who wrote this letter, and that's not a guarantee, I'll say. We'll talk about that in a second. I love the idea that, like, if Ren Fairs had been around, 
maybe he would have gotten these energies out that way and he wouldn't be killing people. <laughs> he just had a good outlet for this energy <laughs> that wasn't axe murder. It's like he's doing a bit. <laughs> like, I'm not going to say that I particularly enjoy the writings of any serial killer. Um, Charles Manson was a serviceable songwriter. Um, but like, he could have... I don't know. I think Son of Sam had a better letter to the editor than like this motherfucker had. Because like... He definitely... He goes a little too far with it. It, it, it keeps going on. Like you can get your points it's like across. He's trying if you to were be wrote. Jack the Ripper. Yeah, it's it's very try hard. He's it, trying very hard, but we'll, we'll, let's get into it. It's time to do some ruining. Huzzah! Actually, I'm going to let historian Miriam Davis, author of The Axeman of New Orleans: The True Story, do some ruining. Miriam's a woman after my own heart, it, right? Um, she's like the leading uh, like authority on the Axeman. Uh, she came up a lot in my research. Awesome. Um. All right, so Miriam asserts that the writer and the perpetrator don't possess the same psychological profile. Quote, when you read the letter, this person, who's an educated person, he has a classical allusion to Tartarus, which is a place of torment in Greek mythology. Uh, It reads like it was written by a fraternity or something. (laughs) And the person who's the axe man, from the description we've got of him, he's a working man. He's working class. And I just don't think that a working class person at the time would have been educated enough to write that letter. I don't disagree. That's the same reasoning that's used... uh, with the From Hell letter from Jack the Ripper. Like, it was written it by too smart of a person. It was written by someone who was, like, trying to be smart and, like, fuck with the police as opposed to the drooling madman right. uh, that Jack the Ripper probably was. So, if the Axeman himself didn't submit the letter, who the fuck did? Uh, Miriam points a finger at Joseph John DeVia as the most likely culprit. Who's this guy? DeVia or, uh, DeVia or Davila. Davia sounds better. Okay. Um, a New Orleans jazz musician composed the song, The Axeman's Jazz, parentheses, Don't Scare Me, Papa. Oh, so it was a publicity stunt. Yeah. Allegedly, Davia wrote the song on March 19th, 1919. Uh, quote, he admits that he finished the composition at about 2 a.m. Wednesday after he was sure the Axeman had no designs on him personally. The Times, Picayune, Picayune? Yeah. Reported on March 20th. The cover of the sheet music featured a cartoon that the Times had printed on March 19th, which depicted a family frantically playing jazz music while watching out the door, terrified. It'll be on the Instagram. Great. I'm going to send it to you right now. x <laughs> Boy, this is art. It, it's truly, uh, it's something to look at. I like how they've drawn all the children looking like they're fucking 40 and have nine to fives. <laughs> well, they did at that time. <laughs> Someone with tiny hands had to fix all the machines. <laughs> all right. So that's that's the night of jazz. No one died that night. Weird. It's almost like it was made up. Almost. All right. August 10th, 1919. Another Italian grocer, Steve Boca, awoke to an intruder looming over him. So if you'll remember correctly... The last attack was in March of 1919. Okay, so this is... So he's he's taken a couple months off. Been a while. Which is not unusual for a serial killer. Yeah, you got killer. the cool-down period. It's a thing. Yeah. Um, yes, so another Italian grocer, Steve Boca, woke to an intruder looming over him. The stranger struck him repeatedly with an axe until he was Ow. knocked out. When he came to, Steve stumbled to the home of his neighbor, Frank Janusa, where he lost consciousness and collapsed. 
Nothing had been taken from the home, yet once again, a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. Uh, Boko recovered from his injuries, but could not remember any of the details. His injuries were the most severe of the living victims, his, stul- his skull being cracked open with his brain exposed. Uh. Yeah. All right. On September 3rd, 1919, so a little over a month later, less than a month later, sorry, the Axeman struck again, this time at the home of 19-year-old Sarah Lawman. Uh, neighbors came to check on the young woman who had lived alone. Um and broke into the home when Laman didn't answer. She was unconscious and bleeding profusely. Her head was split open and several teeth oh, were knocked out. well, that explains the blood. Sarah survived the attack, despite the severity of her injuries, and like the others, she couldn't remember the attack. Uh, police found the weapon, an axe, on her lawn. This one, I feel, is very debatable as to whether or not it's an axe man right. murder. I mean, there's a lot of axes around. It could be a copycat. She doesn't fit the profile mm-hmm. in any way. All right. The last of the alleged Axeman attacks happened on October 27th, 1919. Mike Pepitone Pepitone's wife, Esther, was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of his bedroom just as a large axe-wielding man fled the scene. I guess they didn't sleep in the same room. Maybe he Mm -hmm. snored. I don't know. Uh, Mike Pepitone had been struck in the head. Pepitone? I want to say Pepitone, but... Pepitone, yeah. God, I'm never going to be allowed in Italy. Uh, He had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Uh, Blood spatter covered the majority of the room, including, a weird detail, a painting of the Virgin Mary. I mean, they are Italian, so I assume Catholic, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, His wife, Esther, couldn't describe the attacker um, other than being large. This was considered the last of the canonical Axeman murders, but there are some issues with it, which I will talk about later. He was an Italian grocer. Those are the canonical murders, like I said, in the sense that they always come up when people talk about the Axeman. But mm-hmm. I think a few of them weren't done by the same man because the victim MO was too different. Um, right. Also, what the fuck? Are there, like, missing key details that really make them Axeman murders? Well, like, where it was... um like, the two women that were just, like, by themselves. Yeah. And they weren't Italian. They didn't run grocery stores. So I feel like those are probably incorrect. Um, Louis Bessemer, I feel weird about... I don't feel weird about it. Um, because it does match a lot of the MO, but he wasn't Italian. Did they have the um, chiseled outdoor thing in that one? Um, I don't have that information but there was an axe that belonged to him that was found in the bathroom which is also different because usually it's found outside of the home okay yeah i feel like the chiseled door thing kind of i feel like if that isn't there i would be more skeptical of it i don't think that like necessarily automatically rules it out but like i would question that yeah i don't have information not that there aren't like other ways like possibly it's just like they left their door open, so he didn't, didn't have to, to do yeah. that. Yeah, I don't have yeah. any information on how the murderer uh, got into to Bessemer's uh, house. He was a grocery store owner, so, like, that maybe, honestly, I mean, it could be racism. Like, uh, he looks Italian, he's a grocery store owner, he's actually Polish. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, it makes sense to me that it isn't necessarily because they're grocers, but because... They're Italian. If- they're Italian, and there just happens to be a popular, like, business for Italian people to run. Yeah, I, I have a little bit on that. Time and place. Um, in my, like, breakdown portion. Okay, great. Um, then you can cut out what I just said, so you sound smarter later. Eh. John D'Antonio, you remember him. 
Mm-hmm. He connected the Great 1918 name. attacks to a series of similar assaults that he had investigated in 1910 and 1912, but those were with a meat cleaver, but they were in roughly the same area as the Axeman attacks. Interesting. Um, it's a theory that's been given some credence by modern criminologists and authors. Um, it's also been discounted by... You know how this goes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's, it's definitely possible, but also like, I don't think it's like close enough. It's like meat cleaver acts. They're both weapons of opportunity. Well, we'll we'll get into the the murder specifically that might um, help kind of clear some of that up. Um, It's not weird in terms of like the, the evolution of a serial killer because some murderers will get their feet wet and try some stuff out before, Uh before a cooling off period. Like, um, like Jeffrey Dahmer murdered that uh that hitchhiker and then didn't didn't kill anybody for like years. Right. Yeah. Miriam Davis, you remember her, uh theorized that yeah. the perpetrator might have been in prison for a pettier crime such as burglary, since he seemed pretty fond of home oh. invasion. Yeah. Um so the attacks by the person known as the Cleaver, which is I'm not gonna lie, it's it's a good name. It is. Uh, they began. That's very basic, but like in a good way. It, like it's a classic. Have you seen strong? Have name. you seen Thirteen Ghosts? Definitely. Yes. It sounds like one of the. Um, go- I saw it once, <laughs> and it scarred me deeply. Uh, it sounds like the name of one of the ghosts from Thirteen Ghosts. It does. Yes. I think. Oh, hold on. Mini, not right now, but the only the only one I remember from Thirteen Ghosts is like what the jackal or something. Yeah. Um, I don't remember any of the others. I mean, I was I was absolutely traumatized by the scene where the lawyer gets cut in half by the sliding glass door. Oh, oh, 100%. It's it's now it's like one of my that? favorite scenes from a horror movie. It was that scene and just like the general vibe of the movie really spooked me. It was weird. It was it was some good. Like I feel like if I watched it now, I would not be scared at all, but like 14-year-old me was not into it. Uh there was the hammer. The the ah, hammer okay. was one of the, but yeah, it gives that vibe. Uh, I think I actually picture that the hammer from Thirteen Ghosts when I say the cleaver. <laughs> anyway, the cleaver, the very real cleaver attacks began on August thirteenth, nineteen ten, with Harriet and August Crutey, uh, who had only owned their small grocery store for a month. Oh, grocers again. Interesting. That night, Harriet awoke to a man standing over her bed, wielding a meat cleaver, threatening to chop her up as he had her husband if she did not give him all their money. After stealing $8 and for some fucking reason, their pet mockingbird, the attacker escaped into the night. Priorities. Eight bucks was like $200 back then. And a bird. I would be pretty upset about the bird, I'd say. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, you can have the 200 bucks, but like, fucking leave my cat. Yeah. Uh, so p- police later determined that he had removed a pane of glass from the door in the kitchen, likely hoping to reach the deadbolt uh, before resorting to prying the door open with a railroad pin, which is like a smaller version of a railroad spike. I don't know where he got it. Uh, the lacerations to August's head and chest were not great, but also not life-threatening despite the blood, and he was taken to Charity Hospital where he made a full recovery. So no one died. Uh, a little over a month later, in what is today known as the Seventh Ward, and where I'm realizing right now is where my Airbnb was last time I was in New Orleans. <laughs> Ooh. Um, on September 20th, 1910, Conchetta and Joseph Rosetto <laughs> were also violently awoken by a man with a stolen meat cleaver who had snuck into their bedroom. Uh, he first struck Conchetta multiple times, and then Joseph. The pair survived, though she was permanently disfigured and he was blinded in one eye. 
Ugh, that sucks. This time, the attacker had climbed through an unlatched kitchen window and took nothing, even leaving $23 in the groceries cash register. <sighs> it was summer of 1911 when the cleaver would finally move from assault to murder. Um, newlyweds, 26-year-old Joseph Davi and his 16-year-old pregnant wife, Mary. Gross. I know, it was 1911, but it's still kind of gross. It's still gross, but like... Also, like, that was fairly common. That doesn't excuse it. It's just, like, I they weren't the only ones. I'm not defending it, but life expectancies were shorter. So, like, you got married sooner. It's just how it fucking worked. He was still 26. Whatever. I'm not going to get... We can still judge him. He's dead. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to... I mean, regardless of what happens with the cleaver, he would still be dead. <laughs> All right. So uh, they slept in their rooms attached to their shop in the St. Roch neighborhood which you have to pronounce it like that, like you're hawking something up. Of course. Uh, when Mary awoke to, you guessed it, a man standing in the room. She tried to wake up her husband, who had already been brutally hacked to death with a weapon that was never found. Yikes. Uh, from the wounds, it was determined to be something bladed, such as a cleaver or an axe. The strange That's yeah. dark. Yeah. Uh, the stranger demanded Mary hand over her money, and when she was too scared to answer, he knocked her unconscious with a large mug Interesting choice. It was a foxy grandpa mug. <laughs> Boy, that's like a teaser joke for the next episode. <laughs> God damn it. It's not a callback. It's a call forward. <laughs> uh, despite this demand and the killers rummaging through the couple's belongings, neither cash nor jewelry was stolen. Uh, the, the cleaver had snuck in through a window and narrowly avoided, and this is kind of adorable in a weird way, narrowly avoided the makeshift alarm Joseph had constructed with seltzer cans in their bedroom doorway. <laughs> he tried to home alone it. He did. Uh, Joseph's loaded revolver, which he kept at the be on his bed table, remained untouched. Um, and just over a day after the attack, much longer than the doctors expected, uh, Joseph died. Oh, God, he was still living all that whole time. Yep. Oh, that's deeply unpleasant. So, it's a lot of murder with very little headway in any sort of investigation. Um, and that's kind of how it stayed over the years. Which we'll get into the three main suspects in a minute, but there's something that I wanted to touch on that I hadn't really considered until I read an article uh, by the oft-mentioned Miriam Davis. Mm -hmm. Why Italians? And why Italian grocers specifically? It's a weird MO. Great question. I mean, it is pretty well established that serial killers have victim types that are decided by their individual stupid reasons. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer killed young Asian and black men because he specifically liked hairless torsos. Ugh. Ugh. Ed Gein picked women who reminded him of his mother. Maybe this guy had his heart broken by an Italian grocer. Maybe he was just weirdly racist for no reason whatsoever. Racism, racism actually is a very likely explanation, and there is historical context for why. Um, in the 1880s and the 1890s, New Orleans was flooded with Sicilian immigrants looking for work on plantations where they could save up some money to start their lives in America. Uh, by 1900, the city had the largest Italian community in the South, about 20,000 oh, wow. Italians. Um, who lived in New Orleans. And plantation owners complained that they couldn't keep Italians in the field because in a couple of years, they would have, quote, laid by a little money and are ready to start a fruit shop or grocery store at some crossroads town. Mm. You don't want those damn immigrants taking your jobs. Ugh. By 1900, small Italian-owned businesses had sprung up all around Louisiana. Mm. Uh, but the commercial success of Sicilian immigrants couldn't protect them from the racial prejudices of the American South. This is some of the dumbest shit. 
It's dumber than normal racism, too. Like, I didn't even think that was possible. Because at least with racism, you have the dumb shit excuse of they are different from me. I mean... This is just other white people. Well, that's the thing. It's like, this is when people say race is a social social construct. For a long time, like, Italians and Irish people, like, were not considered white. Yeah. It's just because they're from somewhere different. Um, yeah. But their reasoning, I'll get into it. It's just infuriating and stupid, and I hate it all. <sighs> Italians never entirely replaced black labor in Louisiana, obviously, but they worked yeah. alongside the African Americans in the fields. And while Italians, not understanding the racial hierarchies of the South, found nothing shameful about this, for American whites, their willingness to do so made that, or for American whites, mm. the Italians' willingness to work alongside black people made them, quote, no better than Negroes, Chinese, or other non-white groups. Right. Yeah, that, sure. Sure, guys. And Sicilians are darker skinned than, like, Southern Italians, or Northern Italians. It's just yeah. where you are in the fucking world. It's more sun. There's more sun <laughs> in Sicily. <laughs> anyway, the swarthy Sicilians were often considered not white at all, um, and the notion that Italians were no better than, quote, Negroes uh, helps account for growing prejudice against Italian immigrants um, through the 1900s. I was saying they're just, like, anger at them when they're doing well for themselves, oh, like, yeah. owning their own businesses. Uh, they face suspicion and the occasional lynch mob. Course. And in 1929, a New Orleans judge... Ex this is like 10 years after these murders, by the way. This is 1929. A New Orleans judge expressed a common view of most Sicilians in New Orleans as, quote, Ugh. of a thoroughly undesirable character being largely composed of the most vicious, ignorant, degraded, and filthy paupers with something more of an Goodness. admixture of the criminal element. God, people are the worst. Yeah, we've always been the worst. And, you know, like, the only reason that, like, we don't still think this way about Italians is, well, one, we've progressed as a society, but, like, other immigrants came and filled that <laughs> filled that need for us to hate other people. Yeah. We discovered that there were even more colors of people yeah. and Italians. And Italians, like, integrated, like, as, like, you get, like, first-generation Italians become second- and third-generation Italians. still European like, is the thing. Like, yeah. Ugh, it's... Ugh. We just found other people to hate. Mad again. Um... So after the Pepitone murders, oh, sorry, I need to actually introduce the segment. Um, so we're going to talk about suspects. Um, oh, lovely. So after the Pepitone murders, Esther and her children relocated to Los Angeles um, in September of the year that she moved, which I didn't write down. Uh, she married a man named Angelo Albano. Albano, not albino, just to say it without albano. the flair. Uh, the couple had met previously in New Orleans, and Mr. Albano had entered into a business partnership with a man named Joseph Doc Mumphrey, a pharmacist and criminal from New Orleans. Uh, Mumphrey was known by a long list of names, including Joseph, Leon, uh, Leon and Frank, and last names, uh, including Manfrey, Monfrey, Mumphrey, and Humphrey. Oh, all the Mumford and Son brothers. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm pretty sure that's their names. Did I tell you about my pitch for a, a food cart that makes sandwiches called Mumford and Buns? <laughs> no, but that sounds like that'd be a great background gig in a Bob the Burgers, Bob's Burgers episode. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to open it after I, I open the combination frozen yogurt stand coffee shop called Wake Me Up Before You Froyo. <laughs> your talents are wasted on your job. <laughs> Don't tell your bosses I said that. Uh <laughs> Yeah, there's not a lot of room for puns in accounting. 
except when I did that social media post for Easter that said, ha- Happy Easter, everybody. Uh, so this guy, uh, Joseph Mumphrey, was also rumored to belong to a gang that targeted Italian business owners. Uh, he was also a convict, as previously mentioned, who spent time in prison for bombing an Italian-owned grocery store. Sounds like a cool guy. Yeah, it's weird that he entered into a business agreement with a, an Italian man. Feels like something that you should probably find out about a person before getting into business <laughs> with them. Anyway. Maybe. On the anniversary of Mike Pepitone's death, October 27th, um, in 1924, Angelo Albano left home to run some errands. According to witnesses, he made it to the grocery store and to the bank where he made a withdrawal. And then after this, Angelo vanished, never to be seen again. It's a mystery within a mystery. Ooh. Esther questioned Joseph Mumphrey regarding her husband's whereabouts, and Mumphrey told her that Albano was being held in an extortion attempt. I wonder if he phrased it like that. (laughs) Uh, And he warned her that she would be asked for more money, quote, when things quiet down. On December 5th, so like two months. Oh, wait, no. About a month and a half. I can't do math. On December 5th, 1924, Mumphrey visited the Albano home uh, and... When Esther answered, Mumphrey, claiming to have a gun, instructed her to give him $500, which is an insane amount of money. Yeah, especially in, 19- like, that would be a lot of money today. I don't part with $500 easily. Uh, instructed her to give him $500 and all of her jewelry, or else he would, quote, kill her like I did your husband. Yikes. She told him that she would, but instead retrieved a thirty-eight caliber and proceeded to unload it into Joseph Mumphrey's head and chest. Hell yes! <laughs> this is awesome she's probably just sick of her husband's going missing and dying <laughs> i i found it funny that most of the articles included this line the coroner reported that the cause of death uh were gunshot wounds to the head chest and abdomen oh really great detective work yeah while the coroner couldn't make a ruling as to the manner of death either homicide or self-defense on mrs albano's part um, when the police asked her why she did it, she said, quote, because this man killed my husband. And technically, her only dead husband was Mike Pepitone, as Angela was only missing. Ah, interesting. Uh, she was eventually implicated in his disappearance, but tried and was subsequently acquitted. Again, first person in the sightline. <laughs> and this is in Los Angeles, too. I mean, um, it's not exclusive to New Orleans. No. Uh, To this day, no one knows what became of her second husband, and we have no fucking clue if Momfrey was the Axeman. Huh. He was a, like, he was a pretty good suspect, given his history. The next possible suspect is the Mafia, and I don't have to tell you, but this one stinks of unimaginative racism. Yeah, this is boring. I'm bored already. (sighs) Well, we still gotta... Uh, the theory came about around the time of the Cleaver attacks as local newspapers started pointing out the commonalities between all three sets of villi- uh, victims. All Italian, all tradesmen, and the public began to form their own theories, which, as you can imagine, were dumb fucking theories. The most prominent theory was that the Mafia, or more specifically the Sicilian Black Hand Society, was responsible for the attacks. Uh, many still maintain this theory today, despite Mary Davy, Davi, and other witnesses attesting that the man who committed the crimes was white and spoke English without any indication of an accent. Because if you remember, in the Cleaver murders, at least, he demanded money, so they would have heard him speak. Oh, yeah. So they would, yeah, they would at least have heard his voice. Um, This theory also prevails despite the fact that the Black Hand Society was not so much an actual criminal organization in New Orleans as it was an extortion tactic. (laughs) 
uh, defined by the use of threatening letters signed by an ominous black hand. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's like very like low effort organized crime. Just kind of like something you pull out of your back pocket. Like, we'll say the black hand did it. It'll be fine. Yeah, sure. The Black Hand often received credits for shootings and stabbings and occasionally bombings, but axe attacks were not known to be part of their MO. Um, In fact, a year prior to his murder, Joseph Davi had received such blackmail letters that aligned with the Black Hand's usual formula. Oddly polite opening, followed by a demand for $200, and that vague yet alarming threat, should he not comply. Joseph had Mm -hmm. ignored the first letter, then another letter a week later, and then after he was killed, his brother found a third letter which had also been ignored in a trunk in his house. So, like, that one, maybe. Yeah. But also, I'm sure, like, he wasn't the only one who ever ignored those letters. Oh, yeah. Um, The police questioned... That is a weird... The police questioned truck farmer. Truck farmer? Truck farmer. Oh, I mean, how, how do you think America gets its trucks, Emily? Well, these weren't even the notes that I wrote when I was stoned, so I don't know what I was doing. Um... <laughs> The police questioned truck farmer Sam Pizzo, who had been in the uh, Davi store, arguing animatedly with Joseph only a week prior to the murder and was known to occasionally extort Italian grocers. When Pizzo's neighbor, a grocer in the Carlton neighborhood, came to the police station declaring that Pizzo had threatened to, quote, beat his brains in if he did not supply him with $10, the detectives thought they surely had their man. But when asked to identify her attacker, Mary maintained that her statement that the man who had hit her with the mug... (laughs) You know, the foxy grandpa mug. Yeah, the foxy grandpa mug. Um, And killed her husband, was white and clean-shaven, while Pizzo was a dark-skinned Italian with a mustache. So, long story short, people leaned into the mafia stereotypes. There's little to no evidence of actual mafia activity occurring around these crimes. And also, like, yeah, why would the mafia kill? Like, where's the motive for the mafia to kill them? Yes, uh, the victims were working class, and it wouldn't make sense for the mafia to murder people that they were trying to extort. So Right. You're not going to get money for them when, from them when they're dead. Yeah, the Cleaver murderers, maybe, because yeah. they demanded money in a couple cases, but it seems unlikely. Um, our third suspect is Jake Bird. On October 30th, 1947, the home of Bertha Klut and her be- daughter Beverly June Klut um, was... Sorry, I should note this is in Tacoma, Washington. Oh. I put that in there. Okay. This... A wrinkle. Uh, you'll see. The, the dots get connected. Anyway, so the, the clit home in Tacoma was broken into by an intruder with an axe. Uh, when Bertha tried to pull out a weapon, the perpetrator hacked her to death with said axe, and her daughter Beverly soon came downstairs and confronted her mother's killer and was soon killed as well. Uh. Two police officers sent to the Tacoma residence to investigate reports of screams uh, saw a man run out the back door and gave chase. The suspect was captured and taken to Tacoma City Jail. Jake Bird, a 45-year-old black transient man uh, who hopped trains across the country, confessed to the Tacoma murders as a result of a robbery gone wrong. I would say it fucking went wrong. Yeah. That, that'll that do it. Yeah. During questioning, Bird also claimed responsibility for, I hope you're ready for this, for 44 murders across the country. 11 of which he has been provably linked to. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yes. Uh, Since Bird lived in New Orleans during the axe murders of 1918, he was questioned by New Orleans police, which led to a confession that was later assumed to be false due to lack of evidence connecting him to the crimes. 
Uh, it's also worth noting that he would have been like 17 at the time, and few of the wit and um, also a few of the witnesses probably would have remembered if a 17 year old black boy had attacked them or been seen fleeing the scene. Yeah, you'd think so. I would also be curious as to like what evidence is provable in this case, or that he's been provably linked to. Oh, I'm not saying um, it's necessarily, like, bad evidence. I'm just curious to see, like, what it is. Uh, we can crack open his Wikipedia page in a minute. A jury found him guilty of the killings in Tacoma. Fair. Yeah. Uh, and sentenced him to hang. Maybe not as fair. Uh, upon receiving his sentence, and this is weird, Bird predicted that every person in the courtroom would die before he did. Okay. Wow. S- Yikes. Six of them did die before the state of Washington executed him <laughs> on July 15th, 1949. I mean, yes, that could be a curse, or it's, it's also the 1940s. 1949. <laughs> and again, people, no, I say, I'm referencing our next week's episode again people were drinking radium as uh recently as As the 1930s yeah um (laughs) it was probably also a lot of old white men because it was you know law in washington in the 1940s so that is those are the the suspects we have before we move on to my theory we'll take a look at jake bird's wikipedia article which i did read um i just didn't include i'm gonna pull it up as well not Um, jake bird well Oh my god, there's a section of the Wikipedia article called the Bird Hex. I love it. Oh, here, here's the quote. Um, Bird then said, I quote, putting the Jake Bird Hex on you, uh, all of you who had anything to do with my being punished, mark my words, you will die before I do. Uh, allegedly, six people connected with the trial died. Judge Edward D. Hodge of a heart attack within a month, as did one of the officers who took his first concession- confession, a police officer who took a second confession, as did the court's chief clerk and one of Bird's prison guards. J.W. Selden, one of Bird's lawyers, died on the first anniversary of his sentencing. Hmm. Um, it doesn't really say the 11 yeah. crimes that he's been connected to, but maybe that'll be a mini at some point. Be depressing yeah, I say, I'm just wondering like how many of those they, they had actual evidence for and how many of them are like a Henry Lee Lucas sort of situation. <laughs> well, he confessed to 44 and they could only find 11 that like made sense. So yeah. It might have been, like, a Henry Lee Lucas thing, who I still haven't... I've refused to do on principle. I'll do it sometime. Anyway, so, with with all of that information and no leads, Emily has a theory. I would love to hear your theory, Emily. My completely unsupported by hard evidence theory. Those are the best kinds. If true crime media has taught us anything. I'm a white lady with a microphone and a theory. People have to listen to me. <laughs> Um, so my theory is that it was a white grocer with antisocial or borderline personality disorder tendencies who lost business to an Italian grocer and used that as an excuse to indulge their murderous desires. I mean, that's as good a theory as any, honestly. Well, here's the thing. I do think the Cleaver murders are connected. And here's why. Did, like, a trial run? Um, well, the first murder is usually an accident, you know? Um, John Wayne Gacy accidentally killed a guy who he thought was trying to attack him, but he was actually just making a breakfast. Um, <laughs> and he's like, oh shit, I like the murder. I like the murder bit. Oh, um, it was fun, actually. Yeah. Um, so the first, the first couple, the Crudies, I believe their name is, uh, specifically said that they had owned their grocery store for less than a month. Mm-hmm. So my theory, which I, again, have no support <laughs> to back it up, is that the grocery store was formerly owned by a racist against Italians white man who mm-hmm. lost the business. And then it was bought by Italians who, I guess, turned it into something su- successful. So he was like, but heard about that. 
So he was like, I'm going to break in and I'm going to rob them because I'm mad about it. And then he got carried it's away. It's actually very satisfying to murder these Italians. And he was like, ah, I actually kind of like this. I'm going to do it again. And that's these Italian grocers. So that's how he chose his victim type is that they like took something away from him, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and he was butthurt about it. So then. Yeah, he- and I can see how you would like extrapolate that as like. Every Italian grocer who is successful makes me less successful. Yeah, all these damn Italians coming in and taking our grocery jobs. Yeah, of course. So then you kind of see the evolution over the course of the Cleaver murders, where, like, he kind of figures out, like, either he just wants to terrorize them, he's or he's, like, hesitant to murder again, because, I don't know, maybe there's still some semblance of, like, this is wrong. And then he he quits for a few years, which could be a cooling off period, or he could be in prison, which makes a lot of sense. Right, yeah. Like, he got caught trying to break into someone's house, that kind of thing. And then he gets out of prison. Now he's, like, super fucking mad, because now he went to prison because of these damn Italians. In prison, but Emily, prison always makes everybody better and less likely to commit crimes. Especially prison in 1912. (laughs) So then he's, like, full fucking force. Fuck these guys. And like I said, some of the Axeman murders we talked about, I don't think were actually yeah. Axeman murders. Um, I'll do the Boston Strangler sometime. I feel like it's kind of the same thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. But that's my theory, is that it was a white grocer who like lost business and was like mad about it. That makes sense to me. I can get behind that. Um, it, it could be that Joseph Mumphrey guy. The Mumford guy? Mumford and Sons? Yes. Uh, didn't? the Mumford and Sons guy do the music for Ted Lasso? I don't know. I think he did. Not all of the Mumford and Sons, just... Just the... the Just the, the one Mumford. The main Mumford. The main Mumford. The Sons didn't participate, but I think he's <laughs> friends with, with Jason Sudeikis, because Jason Sudeikis was in uh, a Mumford and Sons music video oh, for yeah. Hope, um, Hopeless Wander. One of the best music videos ever. This is completely unrelated to the Axeman. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I feel so free now that I've downloaded all of this information <laughs> to the world. <laughs> and now it can leave your brain. And now it can leave my brain where I have space for other shit. There is, um, like, such something so freeing about, like, ugh. getting really into particular, like, hyperfixating on a subject for, like, a week and a half. And then, like, being able to, like, share that information and then you don't have to think about it anymore. What I have essentially done in this podcast is I have created an outlet for my info dumps so I can do it without being a complete weirdo. Although I did talk to my coworker about the history of toothpicks for way too long the other day. How did she even get on history of toothpicks to begin with? She asked me what podcast I was listening to. Oh, uh, okay. It was a podcast thing. That makes sense. Like I said, I've been listening to the dollop a lot. Anyways, um, yes, uh, if you have any theories about who the Axeman of New Orleans is, um, tell us at Afternoonified on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can also email us at uh, afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com. We're on uh, on the internet, <laughs> getafternoonified.com, where you can find our merch. We have that fantastic Jeff merch. Yes, please buy Jeff merch. I, I attempted to order a shirt, and then... Same thing happened when I tried to order one of our other shirts. I guess their relaxed fit women's shirts are just out of stock. Oh, boo. But I will have my purple Jeff shirt soon. <laughs> Let's see. Remember to rate, subscribe, review, all of that fun stuff. And as a, a programming note, I guess, or whatever, I don't want to fucking hear about how the Axeman of New Orleans was in American Horror Story Coven. No one gives a shit. <laughs> I hate that season. That's the end of it.
All right. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. We love you. That was a very Kathy, angry way to end the episode. Sorry. Sorry. I just, God, I hate it when Ryan Murphy takes it with the exception of Kathy Bates in, in Coven because she was amazing. Uh, I hate it when Ryan Murphy takes real life murderers and then turns them into characters in his show. Um, I guess I'm specifically mad about Richard Ramirez in American Horror Story 1985 because they turn him into like a whiny little bitch and it's just whatever. I'm glad I've never watched this show. Hotel is a great season is the problem. Anyways, goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is As Above, So Below.